I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they praise God because of me. Brilliant. Well, this is uh, week two of our six-part look at the beginning of the book of Galatians. Uh, and it's titled Galatians for You. And the overarching thing of this story so far has been looking at the idea of the gospel. What is the gospel? And last week, we stepped into the world of one of the very first Christian churches, the church in Galatia, to which this letter was written, and it was written by a man called Paul, who was an apostle of the church, and a missioner, and a church planter, and someone who wrote a number of the other books that we have in the New Testament of the Bible. And Paul writes to them to remind them about the message of power, which he calls the gospel, or which sometimes else we just call the good news, that's what that word means. And he's reminding them that this was the message that brought them in the very first place to God. This was the message that brought them to faith. Uh, He also writes to them because he wants them to understand that even though that was the initial message, the thing that got them in, what they seem to have lost track of is it's, it's also the same road upon which they will mature and develop their Christian life. Some of them have sort of advanced to different things, and they're actually living out wholly different principles in their lives from what got them into the church in the first place. The second thing he wants them to understand is that their church, which is a cultural and racial mix of people who are Jews and were brought up with Jewish heritage and ritual and culture, and then other people who are called um, Gentiles, which just means other nations, people who are perhaps local, people who were from a Greek background or from North Africa, are all thrown together in this church. And they're trying to figure out through the mix of their varying cultural heritage or no cultural religious heritage, what the gospel looks like in common in their community. And again, part of the muddle they've got into is is what they've been doing. Some of the Jews have been saying, we think all you new guys who are local should pick up all the religious heritage that we've had, that we kind of left when we joined the church, but we're now rediscovering special dietary uh, food, uh, special days, uh, special feasts and fasting 
uh, including circumcision and all sorts of uh, rules and regulations. They were sort of adding that on to these new believers and this was getting them into a mess. Last week we heard Paul remind them about two key foundational ideas about this gospel, this message of power that brought them in. And the first thing he said to them was that the message of the gospel begins with the idea of a rescue. I want you to picture somebody drowning in the sea, close to shore, but it's terrible waves and they are lost in the waves, drowning. Picture that. The person that's drowning, they can't swim. The waves are overwhelming. Maybe they can see the shore, but it's, it's, it's still too far for them to find safety in getting to the shore. Uh, maybe they can manage just about to stay afloat and they're ho- just holding on now, but it's inevitable that they're going to be overpowered by the storm and the waves and it's going to meet a dreadful end. And then along comes Jesus. He's the life saver. And he comes to bring rescue. And this was then the second thing that Paul reminded them of, of, of the gospel, that the gospel is actually all about the one that rescues them. It's all about Jesus. And it never changes to be about Jesus. I know that sounds a little bit corny, but it, it can actually be sound so simplistic that it's something that we leave behind as we move on. Paul doesn't want them to do that. He wants them to remember it remains always about Jesus. It's easy for us to lose sight of those two basic ideas, maybe as the years go on. Perhaps imagine the the scene the next day where the man that was drowning and the one that rescued them are being interviewed. Imagine how um, strange and bizarre it would be if the person that was drowning started trying to find ways to take credit for the rescue. I mean, after all, if, if if I, only I'd had swimming lessons like the lifeguard, then um, you know, I wouldn't have actually needed to be saved. So it's just, you know, just because my parents never taught me how to swim. And actually, I'm, I'm going to have lessons now, so it's, it's almost as if you know, it's, it's irrelevant. Um, there were other people drowning who were further from shore from me. So you know, you know, they were in a worse predicament. I know I was going to drown, but I was going to drown near to shore. They were going to drown far away from uh, the shore. It wasn't fair that I wasn't taught to, to, to swim. Um, actually, I called out for rescue. Um, it was me that shouted really loud, help. And actually, I chose to be rescued by the rescuer. And when he got near to me, you know, I waved really hard and I invited him to save me. Um, and on the way back, I, I, I kicked a little bit. So, you know, I sort of assisted in, in the joint saving of us both getting to shore. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's some of the backtracking, if you like, that this church, and I think often we do, we find ourselves in the same predicament, had done over the foundations of the gospel. Well, as we look in the passage that uh, Paul read to us, and do keep that open on page 811, Paul wants to develop some more of this reminder of the gospel. They need to go back to the message of power that brought them in in the first place, that brought them to Jesus and united them in the church. Well, the section that Paul read and the bit that goes on into the beginning of chapter 2 is 
almost like Paul's autobiography. He writes about his own life and he recounts his own conversion and his early Christian experience. And this isn't a, a, a rare thing for Paul to do. He does it in most of his letters and in several occasions through the New Testament. For example, Acts 22 and Acts 26, he recounts his personal story and experience as a way of communicating and explaining the gospel of Jesus to other people. And here, as in Acts, Paul isn't um, sharing his testimony in order to direct attention towards himself. He is using it to correct and refute the kind of dodgy teaching that's come into this church after he's left and moved on to other cities. The first thing he deals with as he talks about his own life is that he refutes the idea that the gospel message was something that he kind of um, discovered or invented himself, that maybe his own reflection or reasoning or thinking. He, he explains to us, actually, um, prior to my ex encounter with Jesus, I was intensely hostile to the church and to Christianity. So much so that he was uh, intent on being the destroyer and the destruction uh, of the Christian church. So for Paul, there was no sort of gradual warming to Christianity. It wasn't that sort of, you know, he, he just sort of cut down on the number of Christians that he killed and, you know, eventually kind of got, got it down to nothing. Paul, Paul's transformation under the gospel was from black to white. It was from north to south. It was a complete turning and transition of what his life was like. The pre-Christian Paul was violently opposed to Christ, so much so that even though he watched the death of people who were martyred under his orders, that in itself did not change him. The gospel that Paul received came by an, un, an uncalled for revelation into his life. And uh, his evidence, his experience is so strong that um, he wants them to understand that that's how he got it. He, he wasn't just a clever guy who kind of figured some things out and wanted to share it on the lecture tour. He was someone who'd received uh, an unusual and particular revelation from God. The second thing he wants to do is he wants to um, refute the idea that somehow he'd, he'd sort of picked up his message from the other apostles in Jerusalem. And he labours it in verses 16 and 17. He says, I didn't consult any man, nor did I go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. In fact, there were three years between Paul's conversion and the very first occasion that he visited even one of the apostles, which he described in the passage we had last week as, as probably more like a social visit to see um, Peter, one of the apostles. Uh, it's likely that there were people in the church saying, do you know what, we've, we've passed through Jerusalem and we've heard some of the things that are called gospel, good stuff, and um, do you know what, Paul, Paul maybe wasn't there for very long. We were there for a year, he was only there for 13 days. So um, we're just like adding the stuff that Paul missed. Paul's had some lovely ideas, but we're adding new and different ideas on top. Paul wants to deal with that that the message he gave them was sufficient and clear for their needs. And he does thirdly want us to know that his message was consistent with what was taught in the other churches by the apostles. He talks about the churches in, uh, in Judea and then later in his life the other apostles that he spoke to. So Paul's 
personal testimony and experience of the gospel doesn't only um, uh, um, give his authority to be the one who communicated the gospel to them, it also illustrates something core about what gospel is. That the gospel is a personal thing. The gospel is personal. It's, if you like, God's story. It's the story of Jesus, but it also has to be my story. It has to be your story. It has to be, as we've heard in the reading, Paul's story. It, it can't just be a set of ideas that we uh, assent to, or even a habit or a culture. Um, it can't be just, you know, I like to go to church, or my friends are Christians, or that was the way I was brought up, or this is the culture that I find myself in. All those things could be good by way of introduction, but there has to come a point when it's something that's personally owned. Paul is so confident in that that he's happy to describe the timeless gospel of Jesus using his own experiences as illustration of it. It's not that we ask, do you believe in the idea of rescue? The question is actually, have you yourself been rescued by Jesus? And like the Galatian church, if we advance so that we move away from that, actually we have walked away from the gospel. The second thing um, that strikes me and that Paul brings out in this um, passage is that uh, the gospel has a lot to do with feeling. So it has a lot to do with head and, and understanding and uh, truth, but it also has to do with the truth of the heart. And you cannot escape the fact that as Paul writes here and as he writes in his other letters, he writes with um, tremendous enthusiasm. He is not half-hearted about this. He is not just bringing suggestions that he wants to sort of offer up if you're interested. He, he brings his message with incredible kind of uh, enthusiasm and he wants people to see his personal feeling and engagement with the message. I think we use all sorts of words to um, connect ourselves <coughs> with faith. And I did a little survey on social media this week to pick up some of the words that we use. That um, If you can just click on the thing so I can do it from here, David. Great. So, um, so to, to kind of adjectives that we put in front of the word Christian. So I've, I've put it out to the internet, so it's definitely true. Okay, and I've, I've put them in order, and I want to take you through them. So um, uh, entry level... Uh, this is what I got from people. To describe someone who's engaging with Jesus with great enthusiasm, entry level, you are a regular Christian. The Church of England is so lovely that if you go to church twice a year, you are considered a regular. Okay, now that's not an excuse not to be here, but that's kind of entry level following Jesus and going to church, a regular Christian. So next up in the intensity was... Committed. Have you ever been described as that? Have you, ever, have you ever introduced yourself to someone as a committed Christian? The emphasis, of course, suggests that um, there's an alternative, which is an uncommitted Christian. I've never heard anyone introduce themselves as that either. Hello, I'm an uncommitted Christian. My name's Christian, so some of these have funny reactions to me, but there you go. Committed Christian. Uh, I feel like I haven't done the washing up when I read that, um, but I have. Okay. Uh, that was the next one. Key. I remember my mum once calling me this. 
She said, you're a keen Christian, Christian. And so that, I think we've tipped into the positive now. Keen. Okay. Have you, has anyone ever asked you if you go to church and you've said, yeah, I'm, I'm keen? Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you like going to church? Oh, yeah, I'm really keen to go to church. Okay, next up, enthusiastic. Okay, I reckon you could hear this critically from someone. They could say, you're a bit of an enthusiastic Christian there. Or maybe you are happy to use that label yourself. I'm an enthusiastic Christian. Um, now, I can't remember what's next, so we'll click on. Wholehearted. That's good, isn't it? Uh, I think I was once in Westminster Abbey, and I heard somebody introduced as a wholehearted Christian. It begged the question, it begged the question what the rest of us were, um, but this heroic person who was introduced uh, to come and speak was, in fact, apparently, a wholehearted Christian. And then uh, next we have passionate. This is one of the ones that I hear... Oh, it should be two S's. This is one of the ones uh, that I hear most often said particularly uh, in kind of 20s and early 30s circles, people will say, that person, she is a passionate Christian. That is great praise. That's almost like that's top of the list. Do you think that's top of the list? Okay, Paul adds one level of feeling higher. Did you hear it in the reading? The way he described himself and his following of Christ, he said it's this, zealous. What a word. <laughs> zealous. Would you ever tell somebody you are a zealous Christian? If someone said, are you a Christian? You, would you ever say, yes, I'm zealous? <laughs> Do you think you might get locked up for it? Doesn't it just suggest a, a, an utter abandonment of reserva- any reservation with which he might not be a follower of Christ? This is kind of the level of feeling and passion that Paul uses in describing himself. And I think this leads to the third thing that I saw in this chapter as I looked at it this week, which is that the gospel is about a complete life change. So we see this in Paul's life. Again, he is the example of it. He was a man that had done many terrible things to Christians and to the church In fact, when Jesus arrests him on the Damascus Road and he has his first encounter with Jesus, the words of Jesus to Paul were, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's Paul's harm and error had been in effect felt personally by Jesus because his body, the church, was being attacked. Um, He tells in his testimony, verse 13, that he intensely persecuted the church of God, and tried to destroy it. His story is a dramatic turnaround story. And there are many others. Maybe you know people who can describe their faith quite easily in that way, or you know know examples from church history. The one that occurred to me was, was the story of John Newton, who you may know. He was a slave trader. He ran ships that moved slaves, that, that brought people into slavery. And he had a dramatic conversion that led to an incredible turnaround of his life. He wrote the words to the song Amazing Grace. Here are some of the words from that song. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew that. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. And uh, even aged 82, he was still able to say this. My memory is gone. 
But I remember two things, that I am the greatest sinner and that Christ is the greatest saviour. And Paul was also a man who'd done many religious things. He had spent years training and learning how to live according to Jewish customs and traditions. And in fact, in the reading, he says this, uh, he had beaten almost everyone in his generation at moral righteousness. Imagine knowing somebody like that who could say, amongst, uh, amongst all my peers, I am the most righteousness in terms of adherence to the rules and regulations of my faith. He was somebody who understood how to attempt to please God by the keeping of the rules and the customs and the, the special things that had to be done. And yet his experience was it hadn't made him right with God. Before conversion, Paul was a great religious rule keeper and he knew it and he was even proud of it in that time. And Paul's experience proves vividly that the gospel is about making life-changing transformation, uh, changing our lives and being changed by God. And no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel. Like the silliness of the person that's drowning near to shore, they're nearly not dying. No one's so good that they don't need the gospel of Jesus to be their rescuer. And like John Newton and like others who may think of themselves in that way, nobody can be so bad that they are not able to receive the gospel of Jesus. Paul was deeply religious, but he still discovered that he needed the message of power, the gospel, to change him. He was very flawed, and yet he still, the gospel could, if you like, break through into his life. And his story is exemplar of complete change. He is someone who went from church killer to church planter. That was his experience. And as he looks back, Paul can now recognise that God had been working in his life long before that actual conversion. That was only like the middle part of the story. He tells us he knew that God had set him apart from birth, verse 15. No, he knew that the, looking back, he could see the grace of God had been a prior work um, in his life. It had been shaping and preparing him for all the things that God ha had for him. Paul had been resisting God and doing lots of things that were wrong, but it was like God was overruling his intentions. And then even now, using his experiences and his past failures to prepare him, first to be a personal follower of Jesus, but then to be a teacher and a preacher and a missioner in the church. And all the Old Testament knowledge that he had and the zeal for the rules and the regulations and all the training and all the efforts and all the passion that he used to oppose God in his church, if you like, God took all of that and transformed it and turned it around 180 degrees so that all those things could now be used in the service of Christ and in the pursuit of building up the church. And so Paul stands iconic that the gospel calls us, like the Galatian church, to not only come to Christ in the first place, but also through the gospel to keep bringing our lives and every area of our lives to God. Well, we're going to pause and chat at your tables, and it's not written down, but I'm going to give you a question 
to think about and talk about. And you may want to take it away to think about it, or you may want to discuss some of it now at your table. So my question is to think about your life and the idea of this gospel that comes in, and maybe the idea of the, the Galatian church who needed reminding of, of it for different areas of our life. So what areas do you think the gospel has, has already come in to change your life? What areas do you think the gospel is, is now coming in, or maybe needs to come in, needs to see the light of the gospel into your life? 